Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's so good to be with you, to sing together, uh, to pray together, uh, to listen to God's Word read together, uh, and now to study God's Word together. Uh, It is a joy. Um, And I hope you enjoy uh, our new song, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. Uh, What an encouragement that song is. It's not an overstatement to say that our culture is fascinated with the idea of the end of the world. I think you might agree. Uh, There's no shortage of movies or books or theories about when and how it'll happen. Uh, Some are natural disasters, worldwide contagions, meteors, zombies, apes, and the like. And it hasn't only affected people's imaginations, Uh, It's even led to new technology with an attempt to recolonize on another planet uh, because it seems inevitable that our time on this earth will end either through something like a nuclear war or uh, through an imbalance in the ecosystem or something like that. Well, Christians uh, are also, or especially I should say, fascinated by the events and things that will occur at the end of time. And perhaps you're familiar with the books and the subsequent movies left behind uh, that were uh, written and filmed uh, a few decades ago that basically talk about uh, the events of the end of the world. Uh, And the reason why Christians especially have been fascinated by this is because of prophetic and apocalyptic literature that's found in the Bible describing it. Well, our passage this morning happens to be one of those passages. So turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Mark 13, which you can find on page 849 if you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chairs. Uh, If you're joining for the first time this morning uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, this sermon text is a little bit unusual from what we normally do. Uh, Typically, I would take a pericope, a section, uh, a portion that more or less stands by itself uh, and seek to try to understand what it says, what it means, and then how we can apply it to our lives today, of course. But today's text is a little different in that it's much longer than what I would normally select. Uh, And the reason is because it's all one speech. It's one long speech, so I think it's appropriate to take it as an entire unit. The other reason the text is unique is because it's in a different genre than, the rest, than most of the book. Uh, it, it's not in the normal historical narrative that the Gospel of Mark is mostly written in. This passage, or this sermon, it's a teaching of Jesus, is a prophetic speech from the Lord himself uh, about the destruction of the temple and the end-time judgment. So before I go into any more detail about the passage, I think it'll help us just to read through the text in its entirety And then I can point out specific things as we come across them. Uh, This text begins with Jesus and company leaving the temple in Jerusalem where Jesus had been teaching for quite some time. Let's read now Mark 13, verses 1 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly 
and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I know what you're thinking. That was all pretty clear, wasn't it? Pretty simple. Uh, I'm guessing those are not what came to your mind after reading this passage. Instead, you likely have many questions. Uh, and let me just encourage you that if I don't answer all your questions, uh, please feel free to reach out, <laughs> to email me or something like that. You can do this, of course, anytime after any sermon. Uh, but with this passage in particular, uh, because it's a larger piece, we, we may not go as deep into the nitty-gritty as we normally would with a smaller chunk of texts. Well, if you're looking for the main idea uh, from this passage up front, I would summarize it this way. Prepare to endure persecution because opposition to Christianity will continue until Christ returns. And be assured, he will return soon. Prepare to endure persecution because opposition to Christianity will continue until Christ returns, and be assured he will return soon. My prayer is that this passage would uh, motivate you to strive for godliness all the more as the day draws near when Christ does return to bring us home to himself. Uh, one of the difficulties about uh, this passage, or really any prophetic passage, is figuring out what events exactly the person given the prophecy is referring to. And while we can say that scripture, all scripture is equally inspired, uh, it's okay to say that not all scripture is equally clear. Not all scripture is equally clear, though it is equally inspired. Uh, therefore, Christians have interpreted this passage uh, in a few different ways. Uh, so first, I just want you to know this is the type of thing that Christians can disagree on and still be a part of the same church, the same fellowship. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I think makes the most sense to me, but you might disagree with that, uh, or you might have heard someone else teach it differently, and that's okay if you do. Uh, don't worry. I won't think differently of you or anything like that. Uh, that's one of the reasons why things like views on the millennium or the age of the earth or what English translation is best, uh, the, none of those things are in our statement of faith. Because we think that there is Christian freedom to come to a different understanding and still fellowship together at the same church. So it's not a matter of inerrancy or authority. It's not a primary doctrine like, say, the resurrection. Uh, there is room for Christians to hold different positions and still believe in the gospel. And many have throughout history. Uh, so it's not a matter of faithfulness or taking the text literally, as some might say. It's a matter of understanding properly, correctly, the method or the style of communication that is used to get these points across. Uh, with regards to Mark 13 in particular, uh, there have generally been three different positions, generally. So this is our large summaries. Uh, the first position that, that some people take is that the entire passage, everything we just read, all apply to the literal destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 meaning everything that we mentioned has already happened. Uh, that's the first group. The second group has taken all of Jesus' words in this sermon to apply only to the final judgment when Jesus returns, meaning everything that was just read is yet to happen. Both of these positions are much easier to explain, or at least summarize, I would say. Uh, 
though they each have their challenges. The third view is that this passage has both events in mind. And then within that third category, uh, people have different perspectives or views about which verses refer to which event. And uh, unfortunately for you, I hold that third position. Uh, so uh, I, tr I will try to make it as clear as I can. I think that Jesus is speaking both to the immediate future, the near future, as well as the ultimate fulfillment of Christ's return, the, the distant future, you could say. So if you look in the passage, I think the best way to understand it uh, is that the final paragraph, if you're using the ESV, the final paragraph, verses 32 through 37, and then the third to last paragraph, verses 24 to 27, both refer to final judgment, uh, while the rest of the text refers to the events surrounding the destruction of the temple. So uh, basically, if you've got an ESV, these, these paragraphs will be summarized or titled The Coming of the Son of Man, and No One Knows That Day or Hour. Those are the last day's predictions, and everything else applies to the first generation of Christians, the disciples that he was speaking to. And I'll explain that as we go along. But in order to understand this passage altogether, I'm going to begin with a few general comments about how to understand prophetic language and how it functions in the Bible. Uh, and then I'll have uh, a point going through each fulfillment, the immediate and the ultimate fulfillment. And then lastly, I'll have some application. So three points, understanding prophetic scripture these days, the immediate fulfillment, and then that day, uh, the, the ultimate fulfillment, followed by application. Uh, so first, point one, understanding prophetic literature. Understanding prophetic literature. Let me just say right from the get-go that uh, many people, when they read a passage like Mark 13, begin to immediately think about the recent headlines in the news and think, is Jesus talking about the times that we currently live in? After all, there are wars going on, right, in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, there have been earthquakes recently, like the one in Turkey. Uh, we hear about famines in places like Afghanistan or Ethiopia. And so the temptation is to look at some of these things described and then immediately say, we must be living in the time that Jesus is talking about. And in some ways, I believe that we are. And yet, we need to remind ourselves what this passage would have sounded like to the original audience first. Uh, we need to exercise a lot of caution when trying to understand passages like this, recognizing we're not the only or the first recipients of this, of this teaching. Uh, it's generally not a good practice, by the way, to read your Bible next to a newspaper looking for direct connections. Let me just warn you from doing that and maybe anyone else who, who does that and tries to convince you of, of their theories. Um, be suspicious of those teachers. Uh, what we should be doing is reading the New Testament alongside the material that the original audience had. And that material was the Old Testament. So in order to understand prophetic literature, we need to understand that it typically serves multiple purposes or has multiple realizations or multiple fulfillments. Uh, it's like uh, many people have said, prophecy in the Bible is like uh, looking up at a, at a large mountain. And you see the peak and you're journeying towards the peak. And then you reach it and you're exhausted and you think, finally I've gotten here. Can't wait to see the view. And then right as you come over the top of it, you realize there's just another peak in the, dis in, in the distance. 
and you've not really reached the top, it's going to continue going. And then if you were to, uh, say, take a helicopter ride up and away from it, you would realize that uh, it's not just one peak, it's a whole range of mountains, uh, it, it all as one unit, but with multiple peaks. And that's a little bit like how prophecy functions in the Bible. So, for example, uh, most famously, 2 Samuel 7 is the prediction about David's son. And there is an immediate fulfillment in Solomon who does build a temple for the Lord. Uh, and we know that that's a real fulfillment, though it's a minor one, because within that passage, uh, the Lord also says that when his son commits iniquity, he'll discipline him. Well, that's clearly not about Jesus, since Jesus didn't commit iniquity. And yet the New Testament authors saw Jesus as, uh, as the ultimate fulfillment of the son. And likewise, there are certain things that Solomon didn't do that Jesus did do, like set up an everlasting kingdom. Well, there are multiple examples from all of the prophets in this way. Uh, another famous one is Hezekiah in Isaiah uh, as the son. Another thing to understand about prophetic literature is that it is given from a God, God's eye view of history. A God's eye view of history. Meaning it's not always laid out in linear or chronological order. Uh, rather, it tends to be cyclical, like a spiral uh, returning to events or different phases of events. The reason prophecy takes this form is to use immediate fulfillment in order to build confidence in the readers or listeners about the ultimate fulfillment. Uh, so prophecy is a little bit like those optical illusion uh, pictures that you've seen will, that have multiple images inside of a single portrait. So you know, you'll see this image and uh, your eyes will be drawn to the darker shade and it'll say, what do you see? And you'll say, oh, this is clearly a, a picture of a rabbit. And then, and then it'll say, you know, is it a rabbit or is it a duck? And then you look at the ears and you realize, oh, wait, that could be actually the beak of a duck. And you see the white around it and you think, oh, well, maybe it's actually not a rabbit. Maybe it's a duck. And you, you are torn between these two images inside of one. And while you might say, well, yes, but what is it really? Is it a duck or is it a rabbit? And I would simply submit to you that the author of that picture intentionally put both pictures in there for you to see. And that's the genius of it. Uh, and Mark 13 is a little bit like that as well. Both realities are presented in a single speech described by Jesus so that we would see the way that God is sovereignly working over history. Uh, one more illustration I've heard to describe prophecy this, in this way that's been helpful for me is to describe it like uh, surround sound speakers in which uh, these stereo speakers you have, you know, some are playing the bass notes, some are playing the melody, uh, others introduce maybe a new line of music, uh, but they all contribute to a beautiful sound. Uh, well, similarly, in terms of prophecy, immediate fulfillment uh, may look or sound one way, it may be like the first few melodic lines, and then uh, as history comes to a close, everything comes together harmoniously, and you see the way it makes this uh, amazing music or picture. Well, what's the purpose of that? Uh, is it just to intentionally confuse people? Uh, well, no, it's actually a form of speaking that the Lord uses, I think, to establish credibility. Uh, so the listeners of the message, for example... Jesus predicts the fall of the temple, and then it happens, and he predicts a number of other amazing things that have yet to happen. 
the fact that the prediction of the fall of the temple happened will give credibility that the other things he said may actually be true as well. And that's exactly what we see in prophets like Isaiah with the fall to the Babylonians uh, and other prophets as well. The, and, and in Mark 13, we see that. The fall of the temple is intermingled with the prediction of his return, and so one provides credibility to the other. Uh, it, it, it zigzags or weaves in between the near and the distant future predictions. All right, well, let's move on to the passage itself so I can point some of these things out. Uh, so point two, these days. These days. Uh, this is, so basically, verse 5 through verse 23, uh, all the way up to 23, and then skip a paragraph, verses 28 through 31, uh, I think all refer to the immediate uh, destruction of the temple for a few reasons. And the first reason is context. Verses 1 and 2 set up the entire speech or sermon of Jesus at this point. Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving the temple, and one of his disciples, unnamed, says, Teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And uh, just so you know, this is not, this is not an understatement. Uh, he's not just saying these things to try to impress Jesus with his devotion or anything like that. Uh, some of these base stones for this second temple, Herod's temple, which is uh, expanded to be about double the size of Solomon's, uh, some of these base stones were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. So it was a massive structure. But it is kind of an awkward thing for the disciple to say, given that Jesus has been uh, up to this point during the week in the temple, rebuking the temple authorities, cleansing it by calling out the bad business practices, warning people about the teaching of the scribes, and then even making prophetic judgments against it. Uh, so maybe this disciple is just clueless. Uh, we don't really know. Perhaps he was just trying to say, well, at least, you know, maybe it's corrupted, but at least the building is impressive, right, Jesus? Uh, but that's what leads Jesus to give the prophecy in the first place, that not a single stone will remain on top of another uh, that would not be thrown down. This is a statement that surely would have shocked his disciples, leading them to ask privately in verse 4 when the things would happen, how they would know that it was about to happen, what the signs would be. And it's at this point that we can say the disciples most likely assumed there would be one single event, meaning they thought when Jesus said that the temple's going to crumble, it would be the same as the end time uh, judgment and establishing the eternal throne. Everything would happen all at once. Well, the larger context is another reason uh, why I think Jesus is talking about the literal temple. So the larger context would be chapters 11 through 13 in the Gospel of Mark, and they all center around the temple itself, uh, telling us Jesus is addressing that that very temple, uh, after implying it would be torn down, that there would be a greater temple taking its place. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and if you don't know the story, in AD 70, a Roman emperor named Titus came and conquered the temple, burning it to the ground. Uh, and it was a... Uh, some would describe it as a horrific and traumatic and catastrophic event. Uh, but perhaps you look at some of the things in this text, like wars and famines and earthquakes and false Christs, and say, yeah, but 
some of those things are happening now, so how do we know it's not now instead of them? Well, I would simply say that there are or have been many times in history that you could point to these same types of things going on. So just think for a moment about how Christians during Nazi Germany would have read these verses and responded to them. Or during the bubonic plague that took out nearly a third of Europe's population. I think any, every generation has witnessed, uh, I think, great suffering to an extent. Uh, but the things that happen in the following years, especially in the revolt of AD 66, I think were clear for a few reasons. And just to name a few uh, that could have fit Jesus' descriptions here, uh, there was an earthquake in Pompeii the year AD 62, uh, that's said to have caused shaking for multiple days and eventually it initiated the volcanic activity of Vesuvius that wiped out the entire city uh, later. Uh, there were several famines between AD 41 and 54 under the Roman Emperor Claudius. And uh, the historian Josephus has recorded some claiming to be the Messiah during this time as well. So all of these things are what Jesus calls birth pains for the destruction of the temple. Birth pains. Uh, we have two kids, as you know, Eli and Cassie, and both were delivered about a week late, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, past their due date. Uh, and that's just the way things played out. But with Cassie, our second, just three months ago, uh, we had a much better idea, uh, uh, idea of what to expect uh, would occur before or leading up to the delivery. We knew the kinds of things to look for. Uh, so, for example, Karis had already experienced birth once. Uh, we were prepared and ready to get things moving. Uh, what was different about the second pregnancy was that she was just really sure that Cassie would come early. She just had a, a gut feeling. So we were on high alert for the signs, looking for contractions, uh, their severity and frequency. We waited eagerly for her water to break. Uh, and, of course, we are living like the Israelites during Passover at this time. Our bags packed. We're ready to hit the road at any moment. I canceled appointments, so I'm not driving any further than 20 or 30 minutes away in case I get that phone call. Uh, and I even started answering the phone anytime she would call me. Instead of saying hello, I would say something like, did your water break? Did it happen? Do we need to go to the hospital? Before she could even fit a word in. Well, of course, I've already uh, mentioned that despite our anticipation, uh, or awareness uh, or prediction that Cassie would come early. She came a week late. Uh, well, the reason I mention all of this is because I think there are two things that birth pains indicate for us in relation to this text. First, uh, they're inevitable. They're an inevitable part of having a baby. They will come. And the second thing, and you have to endure through them, the second thing is that they imply that delivery is near. Uh, that the baby is coming soon. So these signs that Jesus spoke of were the same for the disciples. These would be inevitable things that were going to be signs of what was to occur, namely the temple uh, being destroyed. Another reason we know that these verses speak to the immediate future is because uh, the purpose of Jesus answering their question about the signs is seen in verse 11. It says, so that they would not be anxious not knowing what to say. In other words, uh, these events will give the impression that the end is near, but it is not, in fact, near. It's just the beginning. It's like birth pains signifying the beginning of childbirth. Uh, Jesus tells them that these signs, uh, that he's giving them these signs so they'll have hope to endure through them 
because as he says in verse 13, those who endure will be saved. Uh, and then verses 14 through 23 uh, might be the most confusing for us uh, because Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, and then Mark standing where he ought not to be, and then Mark adds his own note, Mark who's writing the gospel, uh, recording Jesus' statement. Mark says, let the reader understand. And anytime you, you get a meta-narrative comment like that, uh, you need to stop and pray and ask that the Spirit would give you understanding for what it means. Uh, because Mark is likely speaking about something that is uh, more obvious to his readers than to us. Uh, something that is probably just assumed to be on the minds of the first audience. Um, like I said, we should read this passage in the context of the Old Testament. And as it turns out, this is a phrase used in the book of Daniel as well to describe a pagan desecration of the temple. Uh, so it's, it's a, an especially egregious sin uh, in a holy place. Uh, some think that Daniel's prophecy, so that mention of the abomination of desolation, happened in the 2nd century B.C., by uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who conquered Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on a pagan altar in the Holy of Holies. Uh, and I mention that to simply say that image is probably what's on the disciples' minds when they hear about the abomination of, desecration, of desolation. Rather. Uh, and the early church historians assumed that uh, Jesus' prediction about that was referring to Titus, who destroyed the temple and not only burned it down, but uh, in AD 70 set up a statue to Caesar alongside Roman eagles. So Jesus gave them these signs so that they could flee the city. Now that was their response. That's what they were to do when they started seeing these signs. And when Romans came uh, for the siege, the siege lasted only a few weeks. And in that time, uh, it's reported that 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered, uh, woman and man alike, and ch children who were there as well. That there was a great famine in the land as well. That even led some to cannibalism. Uh, but it is reported from early church historians like Eusebius that Christians were not among them during that time. And mo many people think that the reason they weren't there was because they fled when they started to see the warning signs because of this warning from Jesus. Notice with these instructions given in verses 14 through 23, they're all geographically located, uh, meaning they can only apply to people in a specific area when specific events occur. Uh, that's another reason why Jesus referring to the things that would happen in the life of the disciples uh, is what makes sense. Uh, it wouldn't make sense if it was also describing the end time events. Uh, and, and if you follow, of course, the life of the disciples beyond Christ in the, in the book of Acts, uh, you will see many of these things happen in their lives as well. Uh, one even wonders if Luke had this teaching in mind as he was recalling the events to record in the book of Acts, uh, because so much of the opposition and triumph is represented in this passage and in the book of Acts as well such as families being divided, disciples being handed over to governors, and the gospel going out to all nations, uh, for example. Um, Mark 13.10 is an interesting verse. Christians have interpreted it different, different ways as well. 
so my first exposure to it was uh, on a first mission trip I went to in the country of China. And uh, I met with some missionaries there. And they used Mark 13.10 as their life verse, uh, as their kind of motivation for missions, uh, as a way to kind of ignite or initiate the second coming. They basically said, well, we know Christ won't come until all the nations are reached. And since they're not all reached, you know, this is what we're going to give our lives to. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll contribute to this effort. And when that happens, Christ will return. Uh, and I should just say, I love the desire to take the gospel to nations where it is not currently preached. I have um, all, all the respect in the world for that. Um, but I don't think what Jesus is saying means when we look at a globe, every single place where there's a civilization that you can point to. I think in the context of the ancient world, the way the disciples typically spoke about the nations or the whole world was the whole known world, meaning basically the civilized Roman world. Uh, That's what happens in the book of Acts as the Spirit is poured out on believers and the gospel goes not only to the Jews but to the Gentiles as well, to the nations. They are the nations. So, brothers and sisters, it's a good sentiment uh, to desire the gospel, to go where it is not currently preached. We should, of course, strive for that. But be wary of any schemes by megachurches or missions organizations that talk about things like completing the Great Commission as if it's something that would spark Jesus' return. As long as we live, we should be faithfully making disciples of all people wherever we find ourselves. And our participation in the Great Commission will not have an effect on Christ's, the timing of Christ's return. Uh, And then Jesus likens all of these signs to a fig tree in bloom. And the point being, when the leaves bloom, uh, people know when the leaves come out that summer is coming. The signs themselves warn the disciples to persevere through the opposition and to be assured that the end is not yet, uh, but it is just the birth pains of a new age. And that's why verse 30, Jesus says, the generation would not pass away before all things have happened, because all those things did happen within their lifetimes. That's point two. Point three, that day, that day. Uh, These are verses 24 through 27 and 32 through 37. Uh, Now that we've covered all of what I would call the dicey things, uh, we can cover these other two paragraphs, which I think refer to the end times in which Christ does come again. Uh, Admittedly, with the exception of verse 30, uh, it's easier to say that much of this passage speaks to the end times rather than the, the life of the disciples themselves. Uh, And the reason we know these paragraphs speak of the return of Christ is because Jesus stops giving them signs or warnings and instead just informs them of what will happen. In verse 24, he specifically says, after that tribulation. So after all those things that I was just talking about. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and so on and so forth. Uh, In verse 32, it says if he finally answers the original question of his disciples... It was a long answer, wasn't it? That their question about that day, uh, that is the final day in which Jesus returns to bring judgment, to collect his saints and bring them back to heaven with him. Uh, For everything in their immediate future, Jesus spoke to as these things, the signs, in other words, uh, that they would be aware of, 
to look out for. But when it comes to that day or that hour, the end of all time, he says no one will know the day or time. In the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, there will be no signs like before. There will be no way to detect it. In fact, it will come like a thief in the night. Uh, in Matthew's account of this teaching, he records Jesus likening his own return to the flood. And the reason he mentions that uh, is he says, you know, those who did not board the ark, by the time it started raining, it was already too late. When Jesus comes, uh, it will already be too late. What would you do if you knew somehow, I don't know how you would discover this information, but if you knew that there was going to be someone coming to your house in the middle of the night on a particular day to specifically rob you, what would you do if that news came your way? You would probably, you know, prepare. I'm guessing you would maybe call the police to notify them. Uh, maybe you would set up cameras to try to catch them in the act, uh, to identify them or something like that. Uh, hopefully, you wouldn't try to, like, face them or something like that. Uh, but maybe you'd set out booby traps. I don't know. Uh, but the point is, you would, you would be prepared, and you would be watching for them. Uh, and you would know exactly when, when the thief would come. But the Lord has appointed a time to return that we cannot prepare for. Uh, it will not be predicted. Uh, and this is the crucial difference between the immediate fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment, uh, or as I said, the, the near future or the distant future. Uh, we've seen the signs of the immediate already which should tell us that his return could be at any time. Therefore, we are to stay vigilant. Uh, it's because there won't be signs like before to tell us exactly when he'll return that we are to stay awake. And so Jesus tells a parable in, in the final paragraph that makes this abundantly clear. Uh, we are to be like servants given a job when the master leaves, not knowing when he's going to return. And of course, we don't want to be found sleeping on the job. Uh, being irresponsible or anything like that. So we should live as if he could return at any moment. Uh, because, dear friends, he might. So what does that mean for us? Uh, does that mean we should just quit our jobs? Uh, should we look to the skies uh, constantly? Should we pilgrimage to Jerusalem? Should we sell everything we have because it'll be useless in heaven? Uh, I don't think so. And why not? Well, because Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to do that, first off. He tells them he will return suddenly, so they are to continue faithfully as his disciples until that day comes. He also tells them uh, this to give them assurance about their salvation at the end of time. Uh, those who are found faithful at the end of time will be saved. Therefore, if you neglect the things God has tasked you with to do for the time being, you may actually be ignoring his teaching here. Not only that, but we know that the Lord's timing is, is different from our own. All right, just like the God's eye view of, of history. 2 Peter 3, 8 uh, is a wonderful verse to keep on your mind. Uh, it says that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Uh, so if you're tempted at times like I am to think it's been 2,000 years, how do we know he's actually going to be coming? Uh, well, 1,000 years for the Lord is like a day. If we count in thousands, it's been two days. 
since Christ came. Uh, so he may come tomorrow or next week or in another 2,000 years. And if that happens, it will have been four days by this kind of logic. Uh, Peter goes on to say, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The entire uh, New Testament uses Daniel's vision of the Son of Man, which we read earlier in the service, uh, coming on the clouds to indicate Christ's return, uh, which is why Jesus' specific mention of it foretells his second coming, uh, when he will collect all believers from all over the globe, uh, the timing of which he says no one knows, not even himself. Now, how could that be? Uh, this whole time, through the Gospel of Mark, We've been saying that Jesus is God, that he has the authority of God. And how is it that Jesus does not know something that the Father knows? And the answer, in a nutshell, you can find answers longer than mine if you look for them, is it's a great mystery. Uh, what we can say is that without verses like this one, uh, which emphasize Christ's humanity, we would struggle to believe that Jesus was human at all. And we wouldn't have that tension in mind. Uh, therefore, we would question the legitimacy of his sacrifice for us and his ability to empathize with us. And we would doubt that he had human weaknesses or desires like, or temptations like we do. Jesus is communicating in a way that highlights how he humbled himself according to the plan of the Father, like it says in Philippians 2. Notice in verse 32 the just ascending levels of authority as Jesus says these things. Uh, no one knows, no human knows, no angels know, not even the Son knows. So he is also at the same time putting himself above all humans and all angels, but only the Father knows. Uh, this is one of the verses, uh, this verse is one of the reasons rather that we confess Jesus as fully God and also fully man. We wrestle with his authority over all things, yet he was hungry and weak at times. He was once a child and grew in understanding, the scriptures say. Yet in all things he submitted to the Father's plan, never once sinning, in order to provide his own body on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for us. So that all who believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And friend, if you have never heard that message before, uh, then take a moment and just mentally forget everything. Hit, hit archive of everything that I've said so far up to this point, because the last thing that I want you to walk away with uh, is just this kind of perplexity at all of the intricate prophetic details and miss the big picture. The most important thing for you to know is that judgment is coming against the world for all its sin and wickedness uh, that we commit. But God in his mercy has delayed said judgment in order to give time for those to repent and trust in Jesus. So friend, if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, consider doing that today because Christ will come like a thief in the night. And when he does, it will be too late. If you take anything away, take that. Jesus is coming soon to destroy all evil. 
Pray that when he comes, you will find him a friend and not an enemy. I've not left a ton of time for application, and I apologize for that. Uh, Like I said, there are probably more questions that you have, and there are more things that I could point to and try to explain the arguments for or against in this passage. I'll leave it there. I think I've made my points. So what can we say to apply this text to our lives? I think three, three things clearly given to the disciples that we can apply to ourselves. First, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. This is seen in verses 5 and 6 and verses 21 and 22. Uh, There will be and already are many that claim to be prophets or messiahs or saviors or apostles, but there is only one gospel. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, Christians have found the essential elements of the gospel extremely clear for thousands of years. So if someone comes preaching something that you've never heard before, No matter how compelling it might sound or how eloquent their arguments are or how attractive their ministry is, don't believe it. I can say confidently what Paul said to the Galatian church, that if even I or even an angel from heaven comes preaching a different gospel than what Scripture teaches, don't believe it. It's really easy to point to the obvious uh, teachings from other religions that differ drastically from the Bible, but I think what we need to be most careful uh, of is buying into ministries that mix true teachings with false ones. So I'm thinking primarily of uh, of prosperity gospel, word of faith movements uh, that promises blessing and riches if you only have enough faith. Uh, I'm thinking of liberal theology that claims to use the Bible and stand on the Bible, but at the core of their theology, uh, it's not really based on scripture at all, but their emotions. Brothers and sisters, stand on the truth of God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Christ's words will not. Point two, be on guard or stay awake. Uh, Be on guard or stay awake. This is the dominant command. Uh, It's mentioned, if you go through and reread it, it's mentioned five times throughout the passage. Uh, We don't need to look for specific signs, such as an abomination of desolation as the disciples uh, lived through. But we live in anticipation of Christ's return. Uh, So think often of the wickedness that Christ will one day expunge and then long for the relief from sin in the world that we live in. Recognize that all of our time on earth is limited. So use your time and your resources for kingdom growth as much as you can. Uh, Prioritize your own godliness and sanctification so that you can determine right and wrong in a culture that is so confused about it. As Christians, we are not to let go and let God. You might have heard that slogan. Uh, We're not to be passive in our faith. Uh, God's sovereign return or events leading up to it are not meant to stifle our responsibility to be wise, uh, to protect our kids, uh, to teach them the scriptures, to flee immorality, and so on and so forth. Uh, Human responsibility is always an active response to God's sovereignty. To stay awake in the final paragraph is a call to not be lazy when it comes to spiritual disciplines. Uh, It is a call to remain faithful, to disciple one another, and to call others to believe in the gospel and to keep watch for the return of our master. 
third and finally, persevere. Verse 20 and 27, persevere. Jesus calls his disciples to persevere both in the wake of immediate persecution as well as until the day he gathers the elect. Uh, There's no shortage of challenges for Christians. Uh, There are some today who live in the middle of persecution that could be a description of what we read here in this chapter and as well as in the book of Acts. Uh, Whether we are in the middle of suffering or relative peace, which I think is generally speaking our, our experience as Americans, it's a little unusual when you look back at history, we are called to endure in our faith, knowing that if we do, we will be saved when Christ returns. The Son of Man returning is not a moment of terror for those who wait for him and believe in him, but hope and comfort as he brings relief to his saints enduring an evil age. So we can look forward to that day with hope, brothers and sisters. Prepare to endure persecution because opposition to Christianity will continue until Christ returns and be assured he will return soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you have given us words that will not fall away, that endure through eternity. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of Christians that have come before us uh, to pass down the confession of faith uh, to others. Lord, we pray that we would wait in eager hope for Christ's return, that we would long for the day uh, that Christ returns, collects his saints, and brings us all home. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to uh, wait and to persevere through opposition. Would you do this by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.